Good morning, Keystone. Uh, one of the things that we'll be doing together this morning at, at the end of our service is to celebrate communion together. Uh, and, and every time we celebrate communion together at Keystone, we're reminded this is a, a family celebration where if you belong to the family of God, you put your faith in Christ and you're following him, then whether you're part of Keystone or not, we want you to be able to celebrate with us. And so uh, if you are here this morning, you miss the elements. We have some ushers walking around right now. If you could just raise your hands uh, and they'll hand them to you and then you can have them for later on this morning. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can open up to uh, the Gospel of John. uh, And we're going to be in chapter 14 this morning in verses 1 through 6. There, as we start out a a new series this morning. Uh, How many of you have played the game of Balderdash before? Anyone play that game? All right, I think most people, or you probably played a game that's similar to Balderdash because there's a lot of like other ones that are fairly similar to it. Uh, But but the game Balderdash works a little bit like this, that you are, or everyone is given uh, a one card that has maybe a... um, celebrity on it that's not really known, or uh, a place that's kind of an odd place, uh, or uh, some random law, or, or just some word. And then everyone is supposed to write down their own definition of that thing. And then you kind of turn them all in, and at the end of the round, all the cards are read, including the true definition, and and you have to determine, okay, which are the ones that are false and which is the one that's true? And you all kind of make a guess on which one is true. And so you you might, if you play Balderdash, come across words like this, uh, Splanchnik. Splanchnik. Anyone want to guess at what that means? Uh, That just has to do with relating to visceral or internal organs, especially those of the abdomen, abdomen, splanchnik. Uh, Or you might come across a word like wittershins. Uh, Wittershins just means counterclockwise, which sounds so much better than counterclockwise, I think. We need to start using wittershins far more often. Or you also progger, which obviously is just one who progs which you don't know, that means it's to search aimlessly or pointlessly after something that doesn't really exist. Or uh, a carry widget, uh, which is, of course, uh, an absurd question. Or uh, a mobut, which is simply a short sunfish. You might come across these words and all sorts of other words, and, and there's some words that you can try to work into your vocabulary this week if you want to, but, but ultimately, Balderdash works because in the end, you find out what the true definition of the word is and all the kind of false definitions are revealed as untrue. We find ourselves living in a time where so many, maybe even those within the church at many times, approach truth a little bit like the game of Balderdash where what is true and what is false is determined and defined by each individual person. And and so the the words like my truth or your truth are just common for us to hear. Or, or, Or the phrase, well, that may be true for you, but that's not true for me. And yet, unlike the game of Balderdash, people increasingly believe there is no real absolute objective truth by which we can evaluate my truth or your truth. 
Every year, the, the Oxford Dictionary comes out with a word of the year. And in 2016, that word of the year, that they kind of said, this captures a big thing of this year, and this was four years before COVID hit, was post-truth. Post-truth. It said, post-truth is an adjective defined as relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Truth seems to have become less about what is really true and more about what do I think and what do I feel is true. And yet what we find is that this has produced a culture of confusion where where we don't really know what's true anymore because we're not even sure if truth exists. And, And it's produced a culture of anger where when your truth contradicts my truth, the only thing I can do is yell as loud as possible or simply dismiss you because there's no standard to really appeal to. And it's created a culture of anxiety because what's true today might no longer be true tomorrow. And so we have no ground to be able to stand on and hold fast to. And so a question like, what is truth, appears far more complicated, confusing, and loaded than it was previously. And yet the reality is that truth has been something that's been questioned from the very start, right? What's the first temptation we hear in Genesis 3 in the garden? Did God really say? Is that really true? Are you really going to believe that what he has said is true? So while we may live in a different time where where the challenges to truth might seem greater than ever, we should recognize truth has been challenged at every point and every time in history because truth is directly connected to God and his existence. And so as the people of God, we care about truth in every age and every time. We we, we want to be people, or we should want to be people who know what is true, who say what is true, who stand up for what is true, and who speak the truth with love. We should want to be people who are rooted and guided and shaped by the truth. That we should want to be people who are wise and able to discern between what is true and what is false. And that we should want to be people who give our hearts and our minds to voices of truth rather than thousands of other distracting voices on our phones, our computers, our TVs, and more. This series is meant to help us seek to do all those things. And we'll start out this morning by looking at a well-known passage in John 14, John 14, 1 through 6, and really just focusing in on verse 6. And as we look at this, in many ways, just one verse this morning, we want to answer three questions. What is truth? How do we know truth? And why does truth matter? What is truth? How do we know truth? And why does truth matter? And the big idea behind all of this is simply this, that we can know the truth because the truth has made himself known to us. We can know the truth because the truth has made himself known to us. And so let me pray and then we'll read together in John 14. 
Father, we want to give our minds to know what is true. We want to give our hearts to be shaped by what is true. And we want to give our lives to obey and follow what is true. And we need your spirit, the spirit of truth, to speak to us this morning. And so I pray that you would speak. And I pray that what is true and is from you would stick and what might simply be my own opinions, if they're in here, would quickly fade away. And I pray the difference between that would be clear as we read your word. I pray that's in Jesus' name. Amen. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples in the, in the upper room the night before his death. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The first thing that we might ask, probably most, not most important, but one of the most important questions to start out this series is simply this. What is truth? What is truth? Here's how the prevailing secular thought of our day tends to answer that question. I say that this first point is maybe a little bit more philosophical in nature so that then we can get to some of the practical things later on. But, but here's how I think the kind of prevailing secular mindset thought of the day would answer that question, what is truth? That truth is relative, not absolute. Or, or in other words, there's my truth and there's your truth, but there is no the truth that's true for me and you and everyone else in all times and all places. And that the truth is subjective rather than objective. That the the truth is determined by what I think and feel. Truth is simply in the, the eye of the beholder. And then thirdly, that truth is fluid, not fixed. That that what's true today can change and not be true tomorrow. Here's where I think it's helpful for us. See if this is helpful or not, but I think it's helpful for us to be able to differentiate between truth with a lowercase t and truth with an uppercase or capital T. There are certain things that are true for me that aren't true for you and vice versa, right? So I might say something like Chick-fil-A makes the best chicken sandwiches and french fries, I believe that's true. And yet you might say to me, no, 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 Kyle. Popeye's makes the best chicken sandwiches and french fries. Now I might debate you on that and I might pull out the science that proves my point and that you're wrong. But ultimately in the end, I'm gonna say, okay, that's true for you, but that's not true for me. Lowercase t truth really ends up boiling down to personal preferences. And in that sense, it is relative. It's not what's true for me might not be true for you. It is subjective. It's based on kind of what I feel. And it is fluid. It might change. Tomorrow I might change my mind and say, no, Popeye's has the best chicken sandwiches. 
But what's happened in our world is that all truth has become relegated to the place of lower case T truth. And so to say God exists or God created the world or that we are accountable to God and that humans are sinful or to say that Jesus is savior and Lord is seen on the same plane as saying Chick-fil-A makes the best chicken sandwiches and French fries. Or, or to make moral judgments and moral claims like abortion is wrong or marriage is only between one man and one woman or, or gender is what you are born with is simply seen as your opinion and how dare you force your opinion on someone else. And, and yet what we find is we can't actually live that way. Like we can't actually live like all truth is simply lowercase t truth. As many people have pointed out, the, the statement, when someone makes a statement like all truth is relative, is a claim that claims to be absolutely true. Right? Like when I say all truth is relative, well, I say, well is that true for you or is that true for me? It's a statement that breaks down. So to the, the claim that well, all truth is subjective, that, that's a claim that claims to be objectively true. We, we can't talk about truth in any way without revealing that deep down, capital T truth does exist. And, and we can point out the same thing with moral claims. Almost everybody in our day would say something like racism is wrong. But yet if you would press people on that and say, well, no, no, that's only true for you. That might not be true for me or someone else. So say, no, racism is, is wrong, period. You say, well, why? Well, because it is. It's this idea of capital T truth really does exist. Richard Phillips has said this. He said, this is the crisis of truth in our postmodern times. Our society dogmatically rejects truth in theory, but cannot live that way in practice. See, what, what Jesus is saying in this passage we just read is something we can't escape no matter how much we may try to. Capital T truth exists. Fr Francis Schaeffer famously put it this way in when he was talking to students at Notre Dame. He said, Christianity is not a series of truths in the plural but rather truth spelled with a capital T. Truth about total reality, not just about religious things. Biblical Christianity is truth concerning total reality and the intellectual holding of that total truth and then living in light of that truth. So what is truth with a capital T according to this verse, John 14, 6, that we read this morning? First of all, truth is absolute. When Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. He's not saying this is one truth among many. He's saying this is truth for all people of all places at all times. And he's forcing our hand in that statement. He's forcing your hand and say, absolute truth exists because either I agree with that and say, that is true, or I say, no, that's false. But he won't let me say, well, it's true for some and not true for others. 
He's forcing our hand to see absolute truth does exist. And either we say his statement is absolutely true or it's absolutely false. Second, the truth is objective. Another way to put that is truth corresponds to reality. Stephen Lawson says, what is truth? It is defined as that which conforms with fact or reality. It is genuineness, veracity, or actuality. In a word, truth is reality. It is how things actually are. This is the reason something is true. Not because I feel or think that it is true. Rather, something is true because it corresponds to reality as it actually is regardless of how I think or feel about it. So, so I may say, gravity exists. There is a force that attracts matter to the center of the earth. And if someone else says, well, no, I don't feel or think that's true, it doesn't matter. It's true regardless of what we think or feel. And if that person tries to overcome gravity by going out and flying, then the truth of gravity will quite literally hit them in the face because it exists and it's real and it's true. When Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, he's saying, this is reality. Take it or leave it. But it's true regardless of whether we feel like it's true or not. When we make claims like God exists and he created the world and we are accountable to him as his creatures and have sinned against him, and yet he sent his son to save us so that we can know him and live with him forever. We, we are not simply describing personal beliefs. We are making a claim about ultimate reality where we're saying this exists, this is real, this is true. We're not simply saying this is what I believe, although it is what we believe, but we're saying this is true. It's reality whether we like it or not. Francis Schaeffer famously often used the words, the God who is there. The God who is there. And it was his way of saying, God is there. Whether we believe it or not. And we've got to deal with his existence sooner or later. And we can deal with his existence and truth by denying it and suppressing it, as Paul describes in Romans 1:18 where he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, even though what can be known about God is plain to them. So we can deal with God's existence and truth by suppressing it and denying it for as long as possible, or or we can deal with his existence by humbly coming to him on his own terms in repentance and faith and trust in Christ. Third, truth is from God. Truth is absolute, truth is objective, and truth is from God. In other words, God is the source of all truth because he's the creator of everything. When Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, it's the sixth of seven statements he makes in John that start with, I am. I am. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection of the life. I, right? I am the tr- way, the truth, and the life. And what he's doing is echoing a statement God makes in Exodus 3.14 when he reveals himself to Moses, where God says this, 
I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And so when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and life, he's saying, I'm the same God who revealed himself back in Exodus. I'm the one who created everything. and, And that's why I'm telling you, I am the way and the truth and the life. Because the only way that we can actually take Jesus' words seriously here is if he really is God. Stop and imagine with me for a moment. If I got up this morning and I said to you, I, Kyle, I am the way and the truth and the life, how would you respond? You'd say, Kyle has lost his marbles, right? He's trying to start a call. What is, we got to find a new pastor. What is he saying? The only way someone can say, I am the way and the truth and the life, and I say, that's actually real, and we should take that seriously, is if it's God speaking to us, which is what Jesus is saying, and which is what he confirms with his miracles, and he backs up when he goes to the cross and dies and then gets out of the grave. He doesn't just talk, he backs up his talk by conquering death and saying, see, I am the way and the truth and the life. God gets to tell us what is true and false. As the creator of this world, he's the source of all truth. He tells us what's true and what's untrue. And he's also the standard of truth. If if God doesn't exist, then there's really no objective standard we can appeal to. And we're left with my truth or your truth. It's interesting, in 2017, Time Magazine came out with a cover, and maybe you heard this or saw this, uh, and and the cover was this in kind of big red letters, a question saying, is truth dead? Is truth dead? And it was a cover that was actually meant to mirror a cover from Time Magazine that came out a little over 50 years earlier than that, a cover in big red letters that said this, is God dead? Brett McCracken, in his book, The Wisdom Pyramid, picks up on the connection there, and he says these two covers, a half century apart, tell an important story. Without God as an ultimate standard of truth, all we have are truths as interpreted by individuals. To each their own. You do you. It's no wonder we are now as confused as we are. Do away with God, and you do away with with truth. When Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, he's saying capital T, truth exists. Truth that is absolute, not relative. Truth that is objective, not subjective and based on what I feel. Truth that is fixed because it's rooted in God's existence. Now, this gets to the second question, which is less philosophical and I think more practical to us. How do we know truth? Truth exists, how do we know truth? And, and really the rest of this series is meant to help us seek to answer that question. How do we know truth and what's true and false? And so in some ways, this is a, just an introduction to what we're going to talk about in this series. But we might find several answers to that question again in John 14, 6. First of all, this, truth is revealed, not concealed. We believe truth exists because God exists. And we believe we can know truth because God speaks. And so God tells us he's spoken through creation. In Psalm 19, 1, 
He says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. That, that word declares there it is rooted in a word that's just kind of like scroll or book or document. The psalmist is saying the creation, when we look at it, it's like a book from God that reveals its existence and who he is. If you go back to our series on uh, Genesis, you remember in Genesis 1, we talked about the ways that creation reveals God to us and what he's like. And God has also revealed truth through the Bible, through his word, that when God speaks, he speaks truth. And so when we read the Bible, which is God's word, we read truth. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 says, long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And it's through the Bible that we ultimately come to know Jesus. And Jesus is the embodiment of truth. That's why he can say he is the truth. Or as he says later to Pilate in John 18, 37, when he's on trial, for this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. This all means that our pursuit of truth is not vain or pointless. When we seek to know what the truth is, we aren't proggers. See what I did there? We aren't people aimlessly searching for something that doesn't exist. We are searching for what really does exist in the world, in God's word, and in his son. And so we shouldn't be like Pilate who follows up Jesus' statement there and says, well, what is truth? because truth exists and God has revealed it and we can know it and so we can search for it and discover it, which is the second thing here. Truth is discovered, not determined. Because God is truth, both the source of truth and the standard of truth. And because he reveals to us what is true, it means we discover what is true, but we do not determine what is true. When When I wake up in the morning, one of the first things I do is either open up the curtain from our window or open up my phone to find out what is the weather for today. And it's gonna be one of several things. It might be sunny or cloudy or rainy or snowy. And it might be hot or warm or cold or freezing cold. But the weather exists no matter what, and I simply discover it. I don't wake up and determine what's the weather going to be today. I discover what it is, and then I choose, am I gonna live in line with that truth, or am I gonna put on shorts when it's 30 degrees out and act like that's not true? Just as we don't get to determine the weather, so also we don't ultimately get to determine what's true. We simply discover it and then live in line with it or try to deny it and reject it. We discover what's true by understanding God's revelation, guided by his spirit. The the idea that I get to determine what God is like, like I get to say, this is my God, this is who he's like, this is what I think he's like, that that is crazy. If God exists, then he gets to tell me, here's what I'm like, Kyle. You either believe it or you don't, but it's true. So too, the the idea that I ultimately get to determine my identity, who I am, 
kind of create my own identity and then live that out? No, if God's created me and created everything, then he determines who we are and he tells us who we are in his word as he reveals it to us. And we either live in line with that truth or we try to deny that truth. Which is then third, truth is external, not internal. If God is truth and he's the one who reveals truth, then to know the truth, I must look outside myself, not within myself. This is one of the great errors of our day where we are told to look within to discover what's true and then live that out. Quote any Disney movie you want right there. Right? Like that's the prevailing narrative. You just have to look within and discover. And I, and I love Disney movies. I'm not bashing them. But it's look within, discover who you are, live that out. But notice that when Thomas says, how can we know the way, Jesus? Jesus does not respond and say, Thomas, you must look within. And as you look within, you will discover the way and the truth and the life within yourself, and then you must live that out. Um, right, like that, 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 is, that is Oprah, that's not Jesus. Seriously, Jesus says, Thomas, you wanna know? Look at me, listen to me. Believe me, get your eyes off yourself and onto me. Like, enough with Christianity that is just about us becoming a better version of ourselves. Christianity is about me knowing Christ, getting my eyes on Christ, believing him, following him, and becoming like him, and one day being stunned by his glory. It's all about him. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's saying the truth exists and we discover it by looking outside ourselves to the sources through which God has revealed it. The world he's created, the word he's given us, and his son who's spoken to us. But, but maybe then we're left asking, why does the truth matter? Okay, so truth exists, we can know it. Why does it matter? Like, wh- why should I care about the truth? Why, sh- why should I want to know what's true? Why should I speak the truth? Why can't we live in a world where, where all people simply believe whatever they want to and, and we not impose our beliefs on other people? Why, why should we care about the truth? Let's look at just two answers we can find, I think, from Jesus' words here to that question. First, the truth has the power to comfort, convict, and change us. What, what's the context of Jesus saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The context is he's just told his disciples, I'm leaving and you won't be able to come where I'm going right now. You won't see me anymore for the time being. In verse, or chapter 13, verse 33, just a couple verses before this one, it says, little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And, and John 14, then one tells us that Jesus saw that the disciples were troubled, that they're disturbed and they're confused and they're wondering what, what's going on. And so Jesus seeks to comfort them by speaking the truth to them, telling them, I'm going to be with the Father and I'm going to prepare a place for you, but don't worry, I'm coming back to get you and I'm going to take you there to be with me. See, see the truth is able to comfort us as we know it and cling to it. Think about just two basic truths of the gospel that we often repeat. 
God is with us and God is for us. God is with us and God is for us. Those truths can provide comfort, incredible comfort. When we feel alone, when we feel discouraged, when we feel confused, when we feel afraid. But they really only provide comfort if they're true and they're not just wishful thinking. Or think about the truth that God is our father. I love what Joel said last week about what they tell their daughters when their daughters are afraid. That I am a child of God, no evil can harm me. That's true, and that's really comforting. But again, only if it really is true, and it's not just wishful thinking on our part. The, the more we know the truth, the more the truth can comfort us in the midst of all the things that can trouble our hearts in this world. The truth can also convict us. It doesn't just comfort us, it also convicts us. In John 16, 7 through 13, Jesus is going to talk about sending the Holy Spirit. And he says, this is the spirit of truth who will come to convict the world of sin and righteousness. That the Holy Spirit, who's the spirit of truth, uses the truth of God to convict us of where we are living or thinking or feeling or believing things that are false. I think sometimes we we view conviction as a negative thing, like, oh, I don't want to be convicted, that sounds bad. But it's not, it's a really good thing. To be convicted of what's false and what's true and instead live according to what's true is really good. Like if, if I'm eating something that is poisonous and I don't know it and someone else comes to me and says, Kyle, that's poisonous, stop eating it. That's really good. So too, it's really good for us to be convicted of things that we're thinking, believing, feeling, or living that are actually poisonous for our souls. And the more that we know the truth, the more the truth is able to convict us. And then along with that, to change us. Think about the men who are sitting in this room with Jesus, hearing his words on this night. Every single one of them, minus Judas, is drastically changed by Jesus' words. Like, we believe the truth has the power to change lives. We believe the truth can set us free from sin. We believe the truth can bring life from death. We believe the truth can radically alter how we think, how we feel, and how we live. And so the more we know the truth, the more the truth is able to change us and change our lives. But the truth matters for a much bigger reason than just those three as well. The truth has life and death consequences. One of the most sobering verses in the Bible to me is Proverbs 14, 12. Solomon says there, there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is in the way to death. Solomon thinks it's so important for us to hear that. He repeats himself two chapters later in Proverbs 16, 25, where he says again, there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is in the way to death. In other words, I could be convinced that something is true because I feel that it is true. And yet all along, I'm headed directly down a road of death and destruction. When I read that verse, a kind of humorous example of this comes to mind for me. Every time I read that verse, I think about the show The Office and a scene from The Office. Because there's this scene in the show The Office where two of the characters, Michael and Dwight, are driving in a car and they're following a GPS. And this GPS is then speaking directions to them. And at one point, they're at a stop sign and the GPS says, turn right. 
But if they turn right immediately, they will actually head down a boat ramp into a lake. And so Dwight tries to say, no, 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 it, it can't possibly mean turn right here because we will go straight into the lake. It must mean turn right, right over the bridge. We need to go there. And Michael says, no, 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 it's telling me turn right. Maybe it knows a shortcut. And so he turns right and starts to drive into the lake all the while yelling, the machine knows right, as he drives his car straight into the lake. And I watch that scene and I laugh at it and think that's ridiculous. And then immediately think, but isn't that a picture of how often we might be prone to base what is true and what is right off of how we feel. And as we follow those feelings, be headed straight into a lake or straight into destruction and death because we're believing a lie. When Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, he's saying the truth has life or death consequences, both now and forever. To trust in Jesus and follow Jesus is to find joy and life and hope and peace in him. To look outside of him for those things is only to find despair and hopelessness and emptiness in the long run. And, And not only that, but it has eternal consequences, not just consequences here and now. When Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. He's saying if if you want to experience eternal life, eternal joy, eternal satisfaction in God's presence, then you must believe in me and follow me. And and if you don't, then, then you will only find death and separation from God and all that is good for all eternity. This is why the truth is so important and why we should care about it, because truth has life or death consequences. And when we act or live in any way as if the truth doesn't matter, when we make truth kind of fit our own narratives and say, it doesn't really matter what's true, what matters is how I feel. What we end up communicating in the long run is truth doesn't matter and it doesn't really have life and death consequences when it does. And so we should care about the truth because in the end, truth has life or death consequences. And we should care about lovingly persuading others of the truth because that has life or death consequences. Rebecca McLaughlin says this, when questions of truth carry life and death consequences, we see persuasion as an act of love. And the truth that we ultimately know and believe and seek to persuade others of is this. The truth is a person who came to give his life for us to save us. The truth is a person who came to give his life to us or for us to save us. We can be so prone to hear John's words in chapter 14, 6 through the lens of our culture and think, I can't believe there is only one way to be saved. I can't believe there, there is only one way to actually truly know God. I can't believe there's only one way to be able to be with God for all eternity. How exclusive and how intolerant. When in reality, we should read those words and say, I can't believe God has provided us with a way. Like, I can't believe that he's made a way for our sins to be forgiven. I can't believe he's made a way for us to be saved. I can't believe he's made a way for us to know him and live with him forever. I can't believe he would provide a way for us. Last week, my my family and I were out in Montana 
going to visit Montana uh, Wilderness School of the Bible. And, and in the last kind of 15 or 20 miles of driving to get to this school, maybe some of you have been on these roads before, these were like backcountry dirt roads. I don't remember ever before driving on roads that were like this backcountry. I think we saw one truck the entire time we were on those roads, and he kind of looked at us through the mirror like, what are you doing out here? You're crazy. And as we're driving, I saw on our GPS kind of coming up a creek on the GPS. And I looked over at Bree and I said, Bree, what's the chance there's actually a bridge over that creek? Like, what's the chance? I, I'm thinking we might actually have to drive through this creek. And yet we, we came around the bend and what we saw as we came around the bend was this, that it wasn't just a creek, but it was a ravine and that there was this one-way bridge across the ravine. Now, when we saw that, my immediate response was not, I can't believe whoever made this road has only given us one way across this ravine. That is crazy. How into I'm going to find my own way across this ravine? No, I looked at that and said, man, I am really thankful there's a bridge here over this ravine because I have no idea what we would do if this bridge weren't here. When, when we take communion together as a church, we're remembering there is only one way to have a relationship with God. There is only one way to have the hope of living with him in heaven for all eternity. It's through Jesus who says, even now to us this morning, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Don't reject me, don't turn from me. Trust me, follow me, turn to me. And yet when we take communion, we also remember like wonder of wonders. God has made a way where there was no other way. God has made a way where there just was no other way for us. And he didn't have to do that. After all, we can read in Isaiah 53, 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way that every single one of us has rejected the truth, turned away from God, went after our own way, and God could have simply said, live with the consequences. And yet what we find is that he came in the flesh and then the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. See, when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, he does it, on the night before he goes to the cross to shed his blood to be able to make that way for us. And then three days later to rise from the dead and say, I've made a way through death itself. Look at me, trust me, follow me. And he says it on the same night where later he says to the disciples as he passes bread around to them. That this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me because he is the only way for us. And then on the same night where he says, I am the way and the truth and the life, he passes around a cup and says, this is my blood that was shed for you. Drink in remembrance of me. See, we, we can know the truth 
because the truth gave his life for us so that we might have a way to have life both now and forever. Father, we praise you for being the God who has made a way where there was no other way. Jesus, we praise you for being the one who has revealed yourself as the way, who has taken our place, who has borne our sins, and so has left us able to sing the song we're about to sing, that you are our living hope. We pray this in your name.